Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Josh Marshall podcast. We've got a lot to talk about this week with Fox News, uh, the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News, and then a lot of coverage over that. And then you have the related topic of, of Tucker Carlson and the fact that Kevin McCarthy basically gave Carlson show exclusive access to I think it's it's almost like 50,000 hours of um, security camera footage of January 6th. And if, if you think about it, you know, we know in, in this day and age, there are security cameras everywhere, right? I mean, I, I, I think about it sometimes like if it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bad time to be a criminal, right? Like you can like, maybe, maybe I think that especially in New York City, but like there's cameras everywhere, everywhere. You, can, you, you, you really, uh, you know, maybe in your own home, you've got to worry about your like Alexa devices and stuff like that. But if you're out and about in New York, and I suspect this is similar in most cities, and you know, I don't know why it's terribly different in, um, in the denser part of most suburbs, there's just security cameras everywhere, 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 everywhere. And uh, up on Capitol Hill, you can imagine that, you know, given all the attention to security, all of the high-profile protectees and politicians, it's no surprise that there's security cameras just everywhere. So if you figure even on a day, a single day, or maybe, you know, kind of how long did, how long did um, January 6th actually go? I guess it was, you know, roughly six hours or something like that, like the thing proper. I think it gets underway maybe a little before 2 p.m. or wait, maybe 1, 1.30. I can't remember exactly when. You know, it's funny. I remember we were actually recording this show when it started. I remember um, at some point I'll go back and 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 look. Uh, I remember um, the show we were recording that day. I think I had the uh, uh, TV coverage on like on my computer, you know, opened up as a window, basically. And we didn't know January 6th was going to happen, but we knew there was going to be this, you know, it'll be wild protest and everything, right? So we so we definitely didn't know that was going to happen, but we knew it was going to be kind of a bit of a crazy day. Uh, and I remember I saw the first, the first examples of what were, you know, briefly protesters knocking down the police barricade. And I remember, I think I, I think saying on... Um, like on the podcast, like, oh, it's, it's this, it's kind of, 
it's getting, you know, it's getting kind of crazy here. That's like, you know, that's, you don't, you don't see that. You see like, you know, kind of rattling at the, at the fences or something like that. But anyway, we saw it getting underway. So as you know, um, uh, McCarthy, as part of his, you know, the series of deals he has cut with the Freedom Caucus types in, in the House uh, GOP caucus, agreed to give all this tape. So 50,000 hours. But again, as I was saying, even over six or seven hours, when you got that many you know, when the place is just is is just full of um, uh, just full of security cameras, you you, you get a lot of video. So um, he did this, and and uh, I guess what was it? Two nights ago, he uh, did his kind of big, you know, first big expose. And I kind of thought that I mean, look, a lot of stuff happened that day. So I kind of figured you'd find some examples of a Capitol Police officer kind of like maybe decking a protester. I mean, it was it was chaos. So if you wanted to um, if you wanted to uh, get some shots out of context or something like that, how hard can it be? I mean, it was a total melee. Right. Um, and there actually was I don't know if I don't know who has seen this, but um, it it showed up on social media. There's one uh, one clip. It's basically it's outside the Capitol complex. But, you know, there are the, there are outside kind of right on the periphery of the building. There are a series of um, like terraces and kind of patio elevated patios. And there's an example of a, you know, insurrectionist slash protester climbing up one of the external uh, stairways onto the sort of like it's railing, but it's stone. So I don't know what that's what that's called exactly. Uh there's police on the terrace and he's kind of climbing and hiding, sort of hiding behind the railing and everything. And he gets in a tussle with his Capitol Police officer. And it looks like the Capitol Police officer basically pushes him off and he falls off. And they said he fell 30 feet. And it looks like he fell like 10 feet. Um, but, you know, they're they're like attacking a building. I mean, it can get weird, right? So I thought it'd be stuff like that. But in fact, what we saw was examples where uh, the insurrectionists were in the building, but not hitting anybody at that moment. And, uh, you know, there were, there were, you know, the, the, uh, famous, uh, QAnon shaman, you know, the guy with the, with the, you know, kind of Viking helmet and everything. I guess they, they had some video when, uh, Capitol police officers were leading him out. Because remember, and this actually got a lot of negative attention at the time, when they first started clearing the place, they were just trying to get people out. They basically weren't arresting anybody. They just wanted to clear the space. And I remember, I remember at the time, a lot of people were really upset about this. Like, why are these people not being arrested? Why are they letting them leave? I think that was probably a wise idea. They were greatly outnumbered and they wanted to clear the space. There was, they really didn't have the, um, they really didn't have the personnel to arrest everybody, and they didn't want to get basically distracted in in possibly being overpowered. But you know, blah 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 blah. They're getting everybody out. Okay. Uh, so they showed the picture of kind of like leading the shaman guy out, and uh, there was another picture of you know this one insurrectionist guy, and there's like a knocked over lectern or maybe a chair. I didn't see quite what it was, and he comes over and he puts it right side back up. Right. <laughs> so sort of like, you know, they, they, they were, they were, uh, it was a mess and they, they were cleaning up. Right. Uh, a, a basic point, you know, it's sort of like, what about the times that 
bin Laden didn't blow anything up, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's again, you would have to be pretty gullible to be taken in by a few cherry-picked images when a Capitol Police officer was getting the better of a protester and maybe it was rough or something like that. And look, I mean, I can't say there wasn't some moment where where a Capitol Police officer maybe, you know, went too far and hit someone when he shouldn't have or some, something like that. But they didn't even come up with anything like that or even that could be made to look that way. It was basically just there were times when the insurrectionists were in the building but not attacking anybody just walking by so it was all it was all pretty weak and it's actually gotten um uh i i would say kind of a surprisingly negative reaction uh from from other republicans i mean you had a number of house republicans who immediately went on twitter basically like okay case closed this was this was all fake news, and we need to release all those people. Uh, a TPM alum, uh, Sahil Kapoor, uh, went around. I don't know if they were all his quotes, but kind of put together a series of quotes from um, Senate Republicans, basically saying that's bullshit. Like we're not going to whitewash what happened here. Um, so, in any case, you have you have these two things. You have the the Dominion lawsuit against Fox over all the big lie stuff. That is still moving forward. And actually, just before we went on, I did a post about this because I, I, read, um, I read some commentary about this by the two media reporters at this, uh, this new publication, Puck, which I actually subscribe to because there's a few people there who I, who I really like, who, I, who um, uh, do good stuff. But this was not good stuff. And, and media reporting generally is, is, is uh, pretty weak. Um, so in the process of discussing that, I made the point that uh, in addition to everything else about the big lie, it was really a perfect storm for Fox News because Fox puts on deceptive, disingenuous, false stuff all the time. But for that to get you in court, you have to say it, you have to defame some particular entity. There has to be a person who is defamed. The woke mob cannot be defamed. Like American democracy cannot be defamed, or at least it cannot be defamed in a legally actionable way. It has to be some person or entity. And in addition to that, for that to have a lot of um, financial teeth to it, it probably has to be a business or a very wealthy person. Um, because what are your damages? You know, now, in, so in this case, in this case, though, you have a big, profitable company, Dominion, this election machine uh, company. And they were clearly damaged by this. There's no question. I mean, good luck uh, selling your Dominion machines in Alabama ever again, right? Um, so they were damaged. And uh, these, these texts and emails and everything and depositions that came out make pretty clear that all the people in authority at, at Fox knew these claims were false. And they were putting them on for months. And I think, you know, there's a, often you see, um, there can be a division about how other people in journalism react to this kind of stuff. And sometimes you see this division even among, even within the same person. If you're in the media business, particularly if you're a publisher, if you're someone who has to make these kinds of decisions, you have to come up against this stuff all the time. How sure, how sure are we, we know that this is right? 
that that what we're saying is accurate. What is our you know legal uh, vulnerability, even if it is accurate? Blah 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 blah. So there's part of I think people in that business who say, "Wow, we sweat these kind of decisions all the time." When we're publishing stuff we know is accurate or have every reason to believe is accurate that we've checked 10 different ways to see a news organization repeatedly broadcast things they know are false is shocking it's really shocking in some ways it's even more shocking to people in media because again we sweat these decisions all the time on the other hand obviously uh people in media have a really strong interest and self-interest in First Amendment law and robust First Amendment law because they don't want to get put out of business themselves. So all that is all that is unfolding. And you have this thing with uh, Tucker Carlson come up with these videos. And among the many things it tells us is they're still in the same lying business. Nothing has changed. You know, I, I almost I almost wonder, um, you know, what they're what they're talking about now with um, with the uh, January 6th insurrection is not is not, uh, you know, directly relevant to Dominion's lawsuit. It doesn't have anything to do with, you know, voting machines and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But I'm sort of curious whether stuff like this might come up at trial because it sort of shows their continued impunity. They don't care. They haven't come, they haven't come back from, from, the, uh, from the big lie stuff and say, wow, we need to clean house. We need to do better. This was pretty embarrassing. We really, we need to, we need to turn a corner here. Of course not, right? Even as the stuff is coming out, even as their, even as their texts and emails are, 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 are coming out. It's the same old, same old. They don't care. Uh, and, you know, that is the, that is the uh, policy reason, one of the policy reasons for defamation law, that there should be some potential consequence for that kind of behavior. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a few other related issues. We're going to talk about this uh, controversy over the DC crime bill. Uh, some, you know, unfolding stuff about, um, uh, you know, over, oversight in the House and and the, all those investigations and stuff like that, which which actually kind of ties back to some of the some of the stuff we've just been talking about. Before we do that, uh, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Grady's All in One Cold Brew Kit makes thirty six servings of gourmet New Orleans style coffee for less than a buck a cup. Just add water and store it in your fridge for cold brewed ice coffee you'll want to sip all spring. And be sure to take some on your next vacation so you never have to worry about missing your morning brew. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, so Kate, uh, what what do you make of, of, of all of this Fox stuff going on? Am I right that the, that the reaction to it has been it's 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 been a little more negative than than I than I would have anticipated. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways the negativity of the Republican response, and more specifically the Senate Republican response, I think in some ways it has a lot to do with the fact that this is so politically 
baffling because, I mean, what they're trying to do is obvious, right? Like Carl McCarthy through Carlson is trying to launder January 6th. And, uh, you know, this is Republicans started doing this kind of weeks after making it out that these are tourists. But like that was an attempt for a good while. And then it just kind of didn't work because nobody in the world was buying it. So they moved on to kind of trying not to talk about it that much. And here we have a pivot back to that strategy. The end result is manufacturing a new cycle that's all about January 6th, which is exactly what most Republicans don't want to talk about because we just came off a historically weak midterm for them where a lot of the argument that Democrats made was premised on Republicans are too extreme. You need to pick us because Republicans are dangerous. And now we're back in another cycle where, you know, you're having the clips that Carlson is trying to launder, which pretty much only remind people of the, you know, the violent clips. And then you also have other people kind of countering the quote unquote peaceful clips with violent clips. So the end result of all this is just the airwaves being flooded with discussion about January 6th, Republicans' culpability in January 6th. And then on top of it, kind of the meta discussion of Fox News trying to kind of do this work for Republicans and McCarthy working with Carlson hand in hand, um, because fundamentally Republicans have yet to reckon with the reality that a good chunk of the party is pro-insurrection at this point. So that's going to come up, particularly in the Republican primaries, as we start to kind of gear up for 2024 uh, more intensely. Well, it's also, and we shouldn't say it's not like Senate Republicans have been any kind of, uh, you know, paragons of virtue or, or, or bravery about this. That, as you say, they, you know, after some initial, maybe it was Antifa, Maybe it wasn't so violent, blah, 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 blah. Um, They basically settled on that happened in the past. Let's not be dredging up the past. Of course, it was bad, but don't don't be living in the past and don't try to politicize it. We all agree it was bad. Let's move on. Let's be done. And, um, you know, all of them voted against the committee, you know, the the, uh, Jan 6 committee and all that kind of stuff. So it's not that they've been, you know, covered themselves in any kind of glory. They've just kind of their, you know, their uh, battlement has been, let's move on. Yes, it was bad, but we're done. We're done talking about that. We're done, you know, don't politicize it. Don't what, you know, don't whatever. And as you say, kind of <laughs> right back to it. Um, and, and it is a, it's a bit funny because they can't, they can't let go of it. They can't let go of it. Yeah. I mean, if I'm Democrats here, Senate Democrats, obviously, obviously you have control of the committees. Like, I would tee up hearings on this. I mean, this is also, in addition to being politically beneficial, it makes sense to have hearings on this, right? That you have what's with, you know, just a few exceptions been the most watched cable, quote unquote, news network of the past, you know, what, couple decades at this point is so transparently, like with the January 6th piece and with the text piece, working hand in glove with Republican operatives. And not just that, but to put things on TV that everyone involved knows is not true. You know, it's hugely important. It's a huge contributor to the right wing march of the Republican Party and the threats to democracy that we're facing on top of being pretty good for Democrats to keep hammering this stuff, you know, so that would be my next move. Well, it's also, you know, and it, 
it's remarkable how much everything points back to this because uh, this is, I think everybody knows this if you look closely, but it's worth sort of drawing out the point that this whole, uh, you know, weaponization sub quote unquote uh, investigative committee that Jim Jordan is running in the House. If you actually, and we're going to, we're going to talk about that sort of, you know, uh, Democrats put up put put together this like 300 page prebuttal and but if you if you look into that most of it is actually trying to relitigate January 6th because like they have one guy I did a post cuz a couple days ago about this, you know, one guy they focus on a lot is this quote unquote, you know, FBI whistleblower, but if you look at um what you know, what got him sideways with his supervisors at the FBI, it's mainly that he was so he was so pumped about January 6 and was so against uh, you know, d- doing anything to the you know, to the um to the people who were behind it. Like one of the things that came up was that there was this uh basically a cell of three percenters and three percenters are it, it, it's it's uh it, it it's not like a specific organization. It is a kind of it's it's basically a radical movement, a kind of a an anti government radical movement um, in the United States, uh, heavily tied to political violence. Um, you know, kind of a, a a violent ideology. A group of these guys were there on January sixth. They were being arrested, and the FBI. Uh, they wanted to arrest them with a SWAT team. Um, and there's always a basic question of like, what do you, you know, how much force do you use to um, execute an arrest? You know, v- very basic question. Um, and in this case, he later said, well, the, the guy, one of the guys was, was saying he was willing to cooperate. And I, I think by that, they don't mean like cooperate, like turn evidence, but like, you know, turn himself in basically. Um, but he didn't say that at the time. What he was saying at the time was like, hey man, this is this is being too hardcore. These are good guys. Why are you doing this? And also they're gonna be um they're gonna have to face a totally biased DC jury. Now <laughs> that that kind of gives you a sense. I mean, first of all, commit your crimes in a location where you're ready to be put on trial. Like this is this is something that has come up in a lot of these in a lot of these cases where the insurrectionists will say, "Hey, I want my trial back in Arkansas where I'm from. Those are my peers." But that's not how it works. I mean, you you can there are certain cases where you can ask for a change of venue, but the way it works is you go on trial where you did it. Not where your friends live, not where you're from, where you did it. Um so in any case, the point is that a lot of a lot of their investigations, even when they're not explicitly about January sixth, go back to validating and saying January sixth was okay. Or, or um, you know, a few other of these whistleblowers. The reason they're whistleblowers is they were sanctioned because they were there on January sixth, and not as law enforcement. They were there doing it. You know, it's like all about January. They can't let it go. Yeah, and then. The text piece of this is just so it's so comical because it is in that vein of like 
every damning thing that we potentially think, like, let's definitely put it in writing, you know, like these texts are so explicit, you know, and then the one that got a lot of headlines, I think in the past kind of 24 hours is Carlson saying that he really hates Trump, that within days, they're not gonna have to talk about him every night, it's gonna rock, can't wait, you know. But it's all you know, all the coordination is right there. No one's like making any bones about it. It's you, you have Hannity, you have Ingram, you have Carlson kind of talking about like, we have so much power here. And then you have Bartiromo uh, texting with Steve Bannon and saying, I'm not letting anyone call Biden the president elect, you know, it just, and I guess where I come out on this is like, okay, so what, right? We have basically everything that we've known about Fox News for years. There's now just like substantiated proof that Everyone involved was very comfortable kind of lying to their audience and like to who they call their base um, in a way that will help, you know, drive viewership and, you know, reward them financially, et cetera, et cetera. So, again, I just think in, this is like a moment for Democrats to capitalize that I'm not sure they are doing to the full extent. I mean, we've had some like Schumer floor speeches and stuff, which is all well and good, you know, but I... I mean, I think there should be hearings. There should be Democrats should kind of be saying across the board, like, we're not going to do interviews with Fox News anymore. I mean, honestly, I think it's suspect that they have up till this point. But I I do appreciate at least the argument of like, this is how you reach the segment of the population, whatever. But, you know, it does feel like after all this, if it's just kind of business as usual and Peter Ducey gets to kind of heckle the press secretary and, you know, Fox News gets to kind of not have to follow any of the rules, but still get all of the trappings of being a legitimate cable news outlet. It's like, what are we doing here? Yeah, I do wonder because there's been, to your point, there have all, there have long been um, a lot of the prestige on-air journalism names at the other news organizations who whenever Fox's sort of bona fides as a news organization are questioned, totally go to Fox's defense. And I have seen, I don't want to, I don't want to, some of them I know personally and are very touchy, so I'm not going to mention any names. Um, But I have seen a lot of those people on Twitter uh, in recent days kind of saying, how can you call this a news organization, right? I mean, really kind of seeing it for what it is. So I do wonder whether that is, um, you know, whether whether that dynamic is is going to change. I don't know. I mean, there, you know, there was one of the things that happened when Obama first came in in 2009. I can't remember what they said they were going to do exactly. Um, it wasn't, I'm pretty sure, it wasn't like they were going to not... Um, it wasn't like they were going to not let them it like like kick them out of the news pool. I think it was basically just that they were not going to treat them like a like a real news organization because they're not a real news organization. And the other reporters all really closed ranks um, behind Fox. Um, and again, I don't I I don't remember exactly what they said they were going to do. I think it was, I think it was more general. Um, but, but there was that. And one thing that is, that has come out is, you know, their, um, their defense has always been, you know, that stuff at night, that's entertainment. That's like professional wrestling, but you know, kind of, what is it like a mullet, like, you know, all business in the front, Mm -hmm. 
party in the back kind of thing. But, you know, our news organization, it's straight up, it's it's straight news, it's rock solid, all that kind of stuff. And the person, especially since uh, Chris Wallace left, the person who was always pointed to is Brett Baer um, as, you know, you know, he may be uh, personally conservative, but he's not. He's not Hannity. He's not Tucker Carlson, all that kind of stuff. He's a real news guy. And yet we now have this stuff. And this isn't this isn't stuff directly um, uh, related to the Dominion stuff, but about this call of Arizona. Mm-hmm. So and this is leaked. Uh, it, there's a whole separate question of why has this, you know, why is this leaked? Because I'm, I believe it was there's like a Zoom call. As they're wrestling with, just just to remind everybody, Fox, ironically, was the first and for a while the only network to call Arizona. And they were right, but it did stay close for a long time. I think they were, it's not a matter of they were lucky. They were, they were right. They just, they called it first. This this created a huge pushback from the, from the Trump people who were totally outraged. And so then there's this whole debate about, should we pull back the call, blah, 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 blah. The New York Times, um, a couple days ago, they didn't publish a Zoom call, but basically they saw a contemporaneous Zoom call with all the top people, one of whom was Brett Baer. Again, their straight news guy. And he's basically saying, yeah, let's, 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 we got to retract it. And not because it's too soon, just because our people are mad that, that, <laughs> that Trump lost Arizona. So that that kind of that really pierces that one remaining argument they have. And I'll be honest, I was even a little surprised that that he went there because at the time, at the time, contemporaneously, there were there was debate like did they call it too fast? Right? Among among actual election watchers because again, when you call it when you when when a network calls a state, you're not saying I, th- you know, it's more than likely that so and so is going to win. You're basically saying the other guy can't win. It's done. So it's a high standard. Um, but and and so without this um, without this Zoom, that again, I, I think I'm right. The Times didn't. Uh, you know, they didn't publish a Zoom and I don't think, you know, they didn't publish a transcript, but they saw it. It would be one thing if they were kind of saying, hey, it's, they're still counting. It's too soon. You know, we, 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 we made an error here. But that was not the nature of the conversation at all. It's our people are upset and Trump's upset. So we, I think there was actually, I don't know if it was Bayer, but like part of the debate was we should just give it to Trump. And, and I mean, and I mean, <laughs> Through a different reasoning, there may have been some argument of kind of like we we were too soon saying it was over, but there was never any reason to give it to Trump. That's just absurd unless you're just trying to please Trump and his and his his people. Yeah. And going back to that point you made about how Fox has always kind of bafflingly benefited from the warm embrace of the other, you know, cable networks and and kind of the the major outlets. A thing that I've always found so weird is like, on the one hand, you're like, okay, they're probably friends with these people, right? But this, you're being asked this question in a professional capacity, right? And you should be mad that Fox News is given the same treatment as a legitimate news outlet, because like you kind of alluded to at the top, journalism's really hard and making sure you're right about stuff takes a lot of work. And 
Especially when, if you're a cable news person, you're directly competing with Fox, a place that does not have to go through those rigors to try to check that things are right. You know, the, the a place where maybe there'll be kind of an off the cuff, like, by the way, that wasn't quite true. Like four days later, after many night primetime segments have been devoted to whatever the issue is, and it'll be tossed into like the five, right? And then just moved right along. Um, yeah, but it's just... It's like you said, the other piece of it is always pointing to the quote unquote legitimate journalists who work there um, as, I don't know, an excuse or like some kind of putting a facade on the situation. But like you say, you have the bear thing. You have John Roberts, who's like the the kind of big White House correspondent. There's also an email from him and the court filings where he's saying, you know, we're getting a lot of heat from our people on Arizona kind of thing. And it's just like, We've always known what this is, and now any kind of plausible deniability is just gone. And so I just I really hope that Democrats kind of like take this moment to explore how deeply corrosive Fox News has been to the democracy. And I worry based on the reaction so far that it's just going to be what they always kind of do, which is like give it this weird beltway-ish benefit of the doubt where it's kind of like, yeah, we know, but you know, what what can you do? It's like, well, you can do some stuff, you know, you can kind of extend this news cycle, which is making Fox News just look so bad at the very least. Well, I would say I, I agree with that. I would also say for Democrats, I think even more important because, you know, there's no Fox News will not be on the ballot in 2024. It may be indirectly on the ballot in some esoteric sense, but it will not be up for election. It's it's a private company. Um, however, Republicans will be up for election, and they are. You know, it's sort it's sort of reminiscent. I was just thinking about this before we started uh, the show today. It's a bit reminiscent of the 2012 presidential campaign. Now, as we know, the Republican nominee in 2012 was Mitt Romney, who is now treated almost as an honorary Democrat by some people, certainly by a lot of Republicans. Um, And in fact, relative to what came after, certainly on the cultural stuff, he's a a relatively moderate guy. I mean, again, (laughs) everything sort of changed afterwards, you know, when you when you compare him to Trump. But he but he to uh, to try to win that election. Um, kind of went there on a lot of immigration stuff, got into what was the um, what was the sort of a catchphrase of the moment, which was getting immigrants to self-deport, which was basically a euphemism for making things so hellish that that people will just flee the country, basically. Um, in any case, after the 2020, uh, 2020. After the 2012 election, there was this big thing where they did a quote-unquote post-mortem, the RNC did, and there was this kind of collective sense of, we've got a shift. This is not 1950s America. It's a diverse country. All this kind of, you know, th- this, this general, we were wrong. And the upshot of that, the sort of the, 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 the most concrete policy implication of that was we have to pass comprehensive immigration reform. And that was going to be the thing that made Marco Rubio's career. He was going to usher that through uh, the Senate and, you know, get the House to agree and blah, 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 blah. As we know, that lasted about six months. And that bill never got passed. And what ended up happening was the GOP ended up doubling down on that kind of politics. Now, to be clear, one of the one of the upshots was it worked for them. 
it actually worked for them pretty well in a lot of ways. You know, one of the one of the ideas coming out of the 2012 campaign was, and it was frequently put this way, there aren't enough more white voters for Republicans to get. There's just not enough of them. They've kind of maxed it out. Now, one of the lessons of 2014 and 2016 and 20 in, until today is actually there were a lot more white voters out there. And, you know, that that gets all uh, complex and everything. But in any case, what I really take from it is much as, uh, you know, the postmortem didn't pan out, Republicans can't move on from January 6th. You know, it, 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 it frequently gets talked about as, you know, Democrats, they can't get over it. They can't move on, man. That was like, uh, you know, two years ago now, more than two years ago. Move on. It's done. You can't keep, can't keep talking about the same thing. But really, it's Republicans who can't let it go. They keep going back to it. And I really think that, you know, when you, when you see um, all these Republicans now coming forward and saying, yeah, let them out. Let's pardon these guys. And, and, you know, Trump's fully behind it. I think it's important for Democrats just to kind of just just to keep a notebook of all these quotes, because these are 30 second ads, you know, and 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 it's true that the people who make the most outrageous comments are usually people who are in relatively safe districts. But who cares? You know. It's 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 one party. This is what they this is what they're for. So you you really need to um, you really need to remind people. So if anything, it's sort of it's sort of an opportunity for Democrats just to remind everybody this is who Republicans are. Totally. Also, you know, Republicans have been pretty comfortable tarring the Democratic Party with the brush of, you know, like student groups at Oberlin or like far left activists and then just deciding that's the platform of the Democratic Party for ages. So I don't think it's like that unconscionable for Democrats to take the positions of fringier Republicans and say that is the party's position. Well, and also kind of like uh, the reason Jim Jordan is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee is because of Republican congressmen from New York. Right. So it's not it's not just kind of like, you know, totally politics ain't beanbag. You know, it it really is connected. Yeah. Because every you know, it's 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 one caucus. They right. they they support each other. So, you know, while we're kind of talking about these committees, um, you know, something that we've both noticed is the aggressiveness that uh, ranking House Democrats are bringing to the shenanigans of the Republican chairs primarily on these kind of the big investigatory committees, which is, you know, uh, oversight and judiciary. Um, and you you talked about Jim Jordan on on judiciary and how Democrats kind of put out that 300 page pre-buttle. Um, and there's a similar dynamic going on in oversight, which is James Comer is the chair and um, Jamie Raskin is the ranking member. And last night, Comer sent, you know, He's all they kind of do sometimes is send letters, right? So that uh, friendly outlets will write up their letter and they can go on Fox News and talk about the letter. And so Comer sent a letter last night, um, basically trying to bolster his argument that the DOJ and the National Archives treated the discovery of classified documents uh, at Trump's 
places and at Biden's places diametrically differently. And then that's existential proof of the bias uh, within those those departments. Um, and his newest kind of data point is that the general uh, counsel for the archives said that when they first the first report came out about documents found at the Penn Biden Center, that the archives had drafted a statement in response that they ultimately didn't send. Um, and Comer is juxtaposing that with the archives releasing a statement in response to one of the earliest stories about the Mar-a-Lago documents. Um, and then Raskin responds by putting out this whole like, kind of detailed memo and then sharing this letter from the Department of Justice, you know, never before di- disclosed, where the DOJ basically says, like, we asked the archives to can it while we're doing our investigations, right? Like, we're trying to keep things kind of clean and pristine and just zip it while we're figuring out what's what. Like, you don't really need to be in a rush to give outlets uh, your your statement in response kind of thing. Yeah. Um, But what's interesting about that is it feels like a marked departure from how Democrats used to react to this kind of stuff, which is just so clearly kind of playing to the Fox News viewers at home and has very little bearing in reality or at the very least is so spun into something a lot larger than it is, which is kind of like the hand waving the oh, well, they're just making that up. That's I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about uh, whatever healthcare, blah, 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 you know, that kind of uh, technique. And now they're switching tacks. Now it's very like, no, we're going to talk about this and we're going to disprove what you said kind of point by point, which is interesting because that's something that I don't think anyone is like, oh, well, this will convince the Fox News people who will get really riled up about these kind of like minor characters in the right, drama. Right, right, right. But it is a way for them to kind of, quote unquote, work the refs a little bit, you know, because all so much of congressional coverage is about conflict. So it's not just kind of the Fox News uh, jabs, blah, blah, blah. Now it's about the fight, which means that at least that Democrats are getting their stuff in there too, right? Like, and then they can go on TV and kind of talk about how it's not real. And it is this whole new sense of aggressiveness that I think, you know, uh, one of our editors, uh, David Kurtz, had this idea, which I think is probably right, that a lot of it feels like it stems from the um, impeachment proceedings, that you had these a lot of uh, Democrats who have since kind of risen to positions of prominence in the party, specifically on the House side, who were impeachment managers, or that was part of their job, kind of putting together this cohesive narrative, uh, figuring out how to debunk stuff in a way that's not boring and in a way that gets attention. And now you have those same people, uh, you know, kind of on these various committees and who are taking nothing sitting down and not doing any of the kind of, well, let's just sweep that under the rug. Like that's stupid to talk about, but just kind of, you know, confronting Republicans head on and trying to you know, snatch back the narrative of those conversations. Yeah, it's funny because it's certainly not that people like you and I, Kate, or kind of almost anybody who is not a hardcore conservative and just follows national political news. It's not like people were saying like, Jim Jordan, if he says he's got the goods, he's got the goods, (laughs) right? Right. I mean, it's, it's not like anybody thought that. And yet, 
these things can sort of drone on and the way that like, you know, the Benghazi hearings and the hearings about, you know, uh, liberal bias at the F at the IRS and all this, all these kind of things. And, um, people can know they are sort of spun up and BS and all that kind of stuff. And yet they, they can still take a toll and, and people get, you know, there are subpoenas for all these people at different agencies and all this kind of stuff. And what I was struck by when that 300 plus page report kind of pre bottle, whatever you want to call it, came out, <laughs> it was, I almost don't want to say damning because damning gives the whole thing more sort of solemnity. It was like hilarious. They're kind of like, well, these these three FBI whistleblowers, what were they what were they wep- how, you know, how how were they weaponized against? Well, they were there on January 6th like as as they're you know kind of being part of the insurrection. So kind of like were they mistreated? Is that okay that, 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 you know, federal law enforcement can be there with the lawbreakers? And this thing about that, this one guy that I, that I mentioned, um, you look through it and just case after case of sort of middling level, um, uh, him just, just breaking FBI rules and doing stuff he's not supposed to do, uh, using his his friendship with Jim Jordan to hawk a book, to run a fundraiser for himself. And like one example, and this is this is everybody kind of zoomed in on this. You know, there's been this whole um, you know, thing about the Biden DOJ uh, you know, kind of weaponizing the government against parents and school boards and all all that kind of stuff, right? Saying parents are terrorists and all this kind of stuff. So one of the things he had that he wanted to talk about was that um, he uh, was sent to surveil someone at a school board meeting. Well, okay, that sounds pretty bad. FBI agent, you know, someone there is to talk about masks or something and the FBI. Well, it turns out he was there because there's this uh, three percenter guy, basically a guy who there's a terrorist investigation into. So you put all this together and I think it it kind of in one fell swoop now kind of whenever any whenever they talk about their hearings their weaponization hearings the kinds of reporters that usually are like kind of like you know if you talk to them they kind of know jim jordan's full of it but they got to go through the motions right okay we're going to have a hearing now everybody's just like laughing you know it just it just kind of made a joke out of them um and that is different even though kind of everybody probably knew it was going to be a joke it just kind of it it just sort of um wrong-footed them in the, in this basic way that each time they announce someone, a lot of the people in D.C. who are kind of, as you say, they're the refs, are kind of like, what? what? Here's, the, here's the page on that dude. It turns out this guy is like a, a complete liar. And it just, it was pretty effective. And it's a different, it's just a different thing. Totally. And I think it also remove some of the unjustified gravitas that these guys have just from being chair, you know, like you'll have James Comer 
we'll have like a, a blow up, you know, thing of like Hunter Biden, everything he's done badly since birth. And then he'll be like, you know, this is about, this isn't about his family. This is about Joe Biden. This is about the president. And it, that kind of stuff, not that it was taken credulously, because I think like you say, everyone kind of knows who these guys are, but it does give them easier entree into like kind of mainstream news, right? Because they're like controlling these powerful committees. So it's kind of, you know, if oversight chairman says or does something that elevates it's the news. newsworthy level. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so having these kind of point by point rebuttals also just kind of like you say, it makes them look silly because they can't get away with any more just kind of giving the the top lines and saying like, this is a serious problem we want to look into because now Democrats are like, well, actually, it's not serious. It's stupid. And you're making a lot of it up. And, and here is exactly how that's happening. Well, it's funny. There's actually I saw um, uh, Jesse Waters, who, you know, used to used to be like, you know, he started out as Bill O'Reilly's like muscle. Right. The guy who he, if he wanted to go harass someone and like, you know, send someone to take a camera over to take a picture of this person when they're getting into their car and like spit mm-hmm. on him or something. That was Jesse Waters. And now he's got his own show. Um, in any case, I saw a segment with him where he's basically, you know, what's going on? You've been there for two months, House Republicans. Where's the you know, where's the hearings? What's going on? And they're kind of those they're kind of getting it from both sides now where re- Republicans want to see the, you know, want to see them use these chairmanships and their subpoenas and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, you, you've, you've got a more, you've got more aggressive uh, uh, Democrats as, as we've discussed. The other thing though, too, is, and this is, this I think is going to become a bigger issue, is there are a lot of Republicans who are kind of like, let's stop talking about January 6th and how it was awesome. Like, we're happy to kind of cover it up and say it's, you know, never talk about it again. But again, a lot of these things they want to investigate are basically just about vindicating January 6th. And and Republicans who are not in like, you know, Republican plus 30 districts, they want to, they want to be done with that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it kind of goes back to that 2012 analogy I was making before of sort of like, what are we, like five months on? from November, right? When kind of everybody, when, when it was sort of universally recognized, kind of like, all right, maybe the Blake Masters thing, that's not really the future. You know, kind of these like feral incel gun nuts. Like people don't like that, right? Mm-hmm. But, but they're, they're, they're just right back to it. They can't help it. So before we wrap up, let's do a little corner on this DC crime bill uh, that is just... <laughs> so shrouded in stupidity, but I guess, okay, from the beginning. So the DC council, uh, the city council passed this bill, which essentially the point of it is to modernize a lot of the city's crime code, which hasn't been meaningfully touched since like 1901. And a lot of places have done this with their, their codes. You know, you just kind of have to update, um, old, vague uses of language and consistencies. In this case, a lot of the effort was about breaking broad categories of crimes into more specific categories and then clarifying what appropriate sentences are for those kind of different um, levels of that crime. You know, things kind of like grand larceny versus pickpocketing, you know, the uh, use of weapons. Does anyone get hurt? That kind of stuff. Um, And so in some, in the way that this has been just kind of sold and accepted 
including by Democrats on the Hill and by Joe Biden, is that this is a soft on crime bill that lowers sentences and is going to make D.C. less safe. And just literally the text of the bill, that's really not what's happening at all. And the example we keep hearing over and over is the carjacking piece, because carjackings are up in D.C., But what it does is it's just trying to kind of move sentencing guidelines to be where judges are actually giving out those sentences. So basically, with like the most egregious carjackings, judges are giving out 15 years in prison. And this is moving that, um, you know, the sentencing recommendation down to 24 years. So it's not like, is it moving it down from 40 yeah, but nobody, no one's saying like people should be in jail for five minutes for this crime, right? I mean, it's multiple decades. Um, so what is what is what are, what does like the white? I mean, because I I I was not really following this until uh, the president put out word basically that that well that he wouldn't veto it. Mm-hmm. Um, what are, what are they pointing to? What I mean, they it it can't be. Can it really be as 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 trivial as what you're as what you're descri- as what you're describing? Yeah. Okay. So basically, the council passes this. The mayor vetoes it, and she says she agrees with ninety five percent of the bill and doesn't agree with the five percent. And to be honest, like that five percent is all that's being spun. So I think there is an argument here for maybe like this is a good bill. Take out the objectionable parts or the spinnable parts and kind of move right along, right? But anyway, she vetoes it. The council overrides her veto. And then uh, House Republicans kind of get their hands on it. And I think part of why national Democrats were so utterly bamboozled by this and kind of willing to to accept that this is just a soft on crime package is that the pushback from, you know, kind of local Democrats and the people who worked on this bill. And by the way, this bill is a product of like really intensive study involving kind of, you know, a panel with like experts and lawmakers and representatives from all the different law enforcement offices in D.C. and everything. But the pushback was all you don't respect D.C. statehood. You don't respect our right to self-govern. You know, this is racist. This is um Uh, paternal, like all that kind of stuff, which is true. But there was almost no litigation over the content of the bill, which just let the way Republicans were spinning it become, for all intents and purposes, what the bill was. Um, And so then when the way that it works uh, for Congress to kind of bat down D.C. legislation is the filibuster goes away. So it's just simple majority in the Senate. And obviously, you have someone like Joe Manchin, who's going to buy whatever bill of goods Republicans are selling him. Um, and the the Biden decision to knock or to not, you know, block, it's like so many negatives here, but the Biden decision to basically allow Congress to block this city legislation came as a big surprise to a lot of Democrats and especially a lot of House Democrats who are super pissed about it. Um, and uh, And that's basically where we are now. Like there's a lot of kind of anger. Um, there's a lot of incoherence, to be honest, in the White House's statement, because it's kind of hard to go pretty aggressively on, I think DC should have the right to self-govern, except when I don't like what they're doing. That's not exactly a rock solid stance to take. Um, So now, basically where it is now is the chairman of the council is saying like, well, I'm going to retract the legislation. Um, And but 
you know, Hill Republicans are like, no, we're going to keep doing this because they love it, right? It's so good for them to be like, DC is lawless and we're trying to, you know, impose order. Right. Um, and now I think the concerning thing is Democrats just kind of handled this so badly that it really, I think, incentivizes House Republicans in particular to keep going this route, knowing that that's kind of like fertile ground. Um, and I, nothing, I don't think anything like this would ever get through Congress, you know, but Republicans have long said, you know, they want to ban abortion in D.C. and any basically every other liberal policy they don't like. So, I mean, that big kind of shooting self in foot mess is where we are now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the 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 thing that comes through most clearly to me is um, a lot of us just believe that that D.C. should be a state and uh, that the federal government should shouldn't be able to overrule, you know, all, all the all the reasons why D.C. should be a state. I mean, I. I can sort of see the argument, look, as long as it's not a state and you do have a say, then you have a policy question, but it's at at, at best, it creates some level of cognitive dissonance. There's, right. there's no question about that. Um, and whatever, I don't know the particulars of this bill. I mean, it does seem, I am curious why the mayor vetoed it. Uh, the mayor is the one citywide official, or the you know the one citywide official who has a who can who can uh, uh, speak to this. I I would guess that um, it it does not. I, it would not surprise anybody that Joe Biden does not want to go into the twenty four twenty twenty four election with any kind of anything that can be kind of portrayed as soft on crime with his fingerprints anywhere on it. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's funny too, because, you know, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, or well, DC is, is complicated from a law enforcement point of view, since a lot of it is actually federal. And it's, it's very complicated in terms of who prosecutes and what laws different things are under and all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, certainly, you should not, at, at, at a minimum, you should not be in a case where um, a lot of senators and not even like, you know, just Bernie Sanders or someone like that, or just like the hardcore liberals are sort of like, hey, what the fuck happened here? I think I saw like like Dick Durbin and like Dick Durbin, I'm used to like, you know, kind of his major constituency is the is the producers of Meet the Press. Right. And and so if he's upset about it or I don't know, you know, it is certainly basic blocking and tackling. Don't surprise your own caucuses. You know, make sure everybody's on the on the same on the same page about where you're where you're going with this. I do. I do wonder. Um, I don't know. You know, sometimes it it we always need to remember that even people charged with the most grave responsibilities sometimes just screw up. And I don't mean screw up here in the sense of the policy decision they're making. I mean, screw up and kind of like, oh, we forgot to tell Chuck Schumer, sorry, you know, <laughs> something like that. And, and, you know, I, I, some of that may be like, hey, we're, you know, we're, 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 we're working on Ukraine and we're trying to deal with inflation, this kind of, you know, this we just didn't have our eye on the ball. I, mean, I have no idea. I have, again, I only, this really, you, you obviously live in DC now. This only really kind of came onto my radar when the White House made it, you know, made clear it wasn't going to veto it. That's the, right. the first I heard. I mean, and then the deeper part of this that I find to be a bummer is like what you're saying that, you know, Biden is going to run hands up screaming from anything that makes him soft on crime before 2024. 
but it is just it is like kind of profoundly depressing how successful Republicans continue to be with that issue um, and how it's not very important at all that the tough on crime stuff is connected to any factual underpinning. And we've talked about this before. In some ways, it's because is crime up or down is kind of a harder question to answer than it would seem. And there's a lot of different kinds of crime. I think there's also the piece that safety is something that is so subjective um, that if people have had a bad experience personally, it's really, really hard to convince them that the city is not increasingly dangerous across the board. I think obviously there's the race piece and the piece that demonizing cities as lawless hellholes does a ton of work for Republicans and the right wing ecosystem. And then on top of that, you know, I don't know if you saw, but Ashley Parker at the Washington Post uh, retweeted the Washington Post editorial board's piece on this and said, you know, crime in D.C. is out of control. It's it's crazy that this even has to be said kind of thing. And it's like, well, it's not really. And most of the major you know, the kind of biggest, scariest crimes rates are down and down from last year, which was down from the year before. But it's just such a mess. And it's an area where Democrats really just resist not playing by the Republican rules there. Um, you know, and they so that's why I think the idea of like lower sentencing is so scary for them and something they absolutely do not want to be attached to, despite the fact that we've tried kind of maximal sentencing and punishment for decades. And, you know, we've seen all the harm that results from that. And I thought that after Fetterman's campaign, we might see a shift here because we finally had kind of a big, prominent Democrat who ran in, you know, a, a not easy state who did crime in a really different way. You know, he focused on obviously marijuana was his big kind of entry point for uh, the overpunitiveness argument. But then he had, you know, he hired the people who had gotten out of prison to his staff. And when they went after him for that, he was he wasn't apologetic, right? He just very much like kind of stuck to that idea of he, you know, he, he just wasn't married to the idea that punitiveness is the only response to crime. And I thought that might kind of give Democrats a little entryway to at least experiment with different responses to this stuff, especially while we're still, you know, far out from 2024. But, you know, that that was not the case with this uh, instance. I, I will say this, and this is why I've said for many years, progressives and liberals are the ones who have the greatest interest in public safety, because any rise in crime any small rise in crime, which raises the perception of the dangers of crime, is like kryptonite to all forms of progressive government and not just uh, a crime policy, everything. You know, to a great extent, the conservative turn in American politics in the last quarter of the 20th century was, you know, all sorts of roots, but what really drove it was crime politics. Yeah, other things too, but it takes everything else with it. And one of, one of the things that is, that is so striking to me is before the pandemic, there may not have been a great deal of progress at the federal level, but at least in terms of rhetoric, even a lot of Republicans were like, oh, well, obviously we need, you know, kind of, uh, uh, um, I'm forgetting the, the phrase used, but basically lowering sentences, you know, 
you know, letting people out of long jail terms and all that, all that thing that was happening uh, before the pandemic. And as we can see, um, that can change really fast, really, really fast. And to your point, you know, I have, I, I've always been really interested in uh, the the causes of violent crime, particularly murder, and the politics around it, because murder is the ultimate crime. Mm-hmm. For reasons that are obvious, um, not only because it is the most fundamental crime, but it is the least, it is the crime that is least uh, subject to the variances of reporting. When someone dies, they die, but they're they're gone. You don't something happened to them, right? Even if you can't find the body, someone disappeared. Um, we know that historically. Uh, rape and sexual sex-based crimes are very, very frequently not reported or they're reported and they're not prosecuted. So the the rates of sexual crimes are, the, the numbers are hard to make sense of. Um, even things like theft, not everything is reported, blah, 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 blah. So murder is, is, is the cardinal crime. And... Um, you know, I've been very focused on crime rates in New York City, just because I've always been, you know, it's where I live. It's kind of so much of, of late 20th century was on the sort of the mythic status of, of, of New York City being out of control. And it is true that uh, murder rates went up a bit during the first, you know, the first year of the pandemic, and then they stabilized and they've basically come down. And that is, that is pretty much the case around the country in the sense of there was a there was a there was a jump that didn't get you remotely as high as like you know the 1980s early 1990s but there was a jump and then stabilized most places going back down but but the caveat to that is that there are a lot of crimes like carjacking just uh, uh break-ins to store you know um there, there's um larceny is the term but but basically just kind of theft, certain kinds of theft, not burglary, but just people breaking into stores, people, you know, this kind of mass shoplifting where a group of people will descend on a store, blah, 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 blah. So that, that is, that has a big effect on perceptions. And certainly if your stuff gets stolen, it, it is, it's, it, it's, it's very upsetting, right? Anybody who's ever, uh, had anything stolen it feels like a violation and all that kind of stuff but but as you say the actual crime rate is complicated right now um and i think it's largely tied to just you know it's sort of like one of those snow globe things right someone took our whole society and just shook it up and everything got really got really weird and um I, I'm, I'm not sure i'm a pessimist about this i guess i'd say i'm a realist that when people feel insecure, be insecure in that sense, I'm, mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. unsafe. Um, th- the political ramifications of that are going to be really bad. And it's really important to focus on doing things to, to change the roots of that. Even You're not going to, you are just never going to get very far politically saying, look, People are not really being killed more than they were. Uh, larceny is up, and, scar- and and carjacking is up, but uh, break-ins in the homes are not. You know, pe- people they want none, right? They want it all to be going down. And um, 
Having said that, I think we have seen that um, just upping jail sentences is not really the most effective way to change that. Um, you know, so, some, but I'll tell you some, you know, some very basic things that, you know, support for capital punishment is at historic lows. Mm -hmm. It still is, even with everything that's happened in the last few years. Um, but I pretty much guarantee you, if we went back to crime rates, the, the, the way they were in the late 70s and 80s and early 90s, it would go back up. Um, and as someone who doesn't believe in capital punishment, that's, again, that's a reason to really think creatively about public safety. And, and it, it, it goes way beyond just incarceration and capital punishment and all of the, um, all of the ways that uh, black Americans and non-white Americans take the brunt of, of heightened law, you know, heightened mm -hmm. law enforcement. Um, it really is up to progressives to come up with creative ways to ensure public safety, because without it, all progressive government kind of quickly goes by the wayside. And that's just, that's what I mean by sort of, I'm not sure it's a pessimist, being a realist. That's just a fact. And, and um, you're not going to, if people feel insecure, you're not going to convince them that, the, that showing them some statistics, it's not as bad as you think. It's just, I mean, it's not like the people who, who were against mass incarceration in the 70s and 80s just kind of were dumb. Right. <laughs> or who are against capital punishment. It's 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 like impossible. So anyway, sort of a bit of a down note there. Any <laughs> other thoughts on that before we wrap up? No, I, I think that's all right. And I think um, you know, there's not gonna be any space for kind of progressive creativity about public safety stuff while Democrats are just so afraid of what Republicans are gonna say about them here because they're always gonna say that, right? And we've I mean, we've seen that kind of doing the same thing is not going to work. So the options are stark, but based on this, I don't know, kind of capitulation, it just doesn't, <laughs> I don't know. I wish I had something more hopeful to say, but this episode doesn't give you a lot of faith that Democrats are kind of going to split away from their stepping into Republicans line that they've been doing for, you know, recent history. Well, I, I would say this, I, I do think, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think was bad that, that was, strategically and substantively bad about a lot of the response to what happened uh, during the pandemic, in the aftermath of, of, of the murder of George, uh, George Floyd, um, the, you know, the kind of the talk of defund the police is you can spend more money on non-armed public safety. You know, when when you've got someone in a mental health crisis, you don't have to send a bunch of sort of like, you know, amped up 30 year old men with guns. A lot of time that is not going to end well. And I think that there is a lot that even police would support mm -hmm. and that would uh, end up with a lot of a lot fewer tragic outcomes if you say, Let's set aside this whole like not just defunding the police, but you know, cutting police budgets, all this kind of stuff, making it a zero sum. Maybe it should be a zero sum, but it's not a good political zero sum. And you're gonna lose those debates. 
Um, this is kind of my point about progressives need to be creative about how you ensure public safety, right? Because again, as much as they say they're against it, high crime rates are great for conservatives. Mm-hmm. It means they're all going to get elected. So, um, and that is a case where, again, set aside rem- taking money from police budgets, at least at first, try funding other stuff that actually can, can, can move the ball. And again, I think it was just a substantively and strategically uh, understandable, perhaps, uh, we're still living in crazy times and 20, 2020 was the craziest of times. But again, making it that zero sum. We're going to take money from the police, give it to these kind of, you know, counselor first responders, which can easily be pilloried as, oh, we're going to give it to some social worker who's going to show up during the bank robbery and find out about the deep causes of why (laughs) they went to a life of crime and stuff. Again, don't make it either or, because if you get out of the, if you move away from the aggressively politicized stuff, there's always been a constituency among cops for don't send us when someone is like having a breakdown we're not trained for that you know uh so anyway it's it's it really is it may not be fair but it really it behooves progressives to be creative and smart about how you ensure public safety because without it you might as well go back to like 1979 and like just agree only to elect republicans all right. So on that note, <laughs> let me remind everybody the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off your order if you go to Grady'sColdBrew.com and use the promo code TPM. And you can, of course, uh, buy Grady's at all your better supermarket and grocery establishments. So all right. See you that's next it. Week. See you next week. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 